Turn to 1 Thessalonians 1 if you want to follow along. just want to read this chapter as, as we start. Watch for the words chosen or election. You'll see it pop up. Um, I'm going to be reading out of this version, so it may be a little different than what you have, but I, it won't prove, you'll be able to follow along. Paul to the Thessalonians, verse 1, it says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers remembering without ceasing your work of faith your labor and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ before our God and Father. Knowing, beloved, knowing brothers, beloved by God, your election. For our gospel didn't come, did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full assurance. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of interest we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. That's far God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, again, we just pray and thank You for Your love, Your grace, Your mercy to us in Christ. We thank You that in Your in your grace, we have your word. We have the inspired, God-breathed word that is sufficient. That give, From your promises, we, we have everything necessary for life and godliness. We have your spirit, your word, your son. So be with us tonight, Lord. We know we keep asking the question, what does the word teach? Just help us to... Be faithful with your word. Help us to understand what your word teaches. Help us to embrace it. Whether we understand it fully or not, we, we usually don't. Whether we like it or not, just we want to know what your word teaches. So help me as I lead and help us as we listen and participate to mind the depths of your grace expressed in the doctrines of grace and uh, to come away humbled, Resting in you, boasting in you, knowing a little more about what your truth teaches. So, bless and be with us tonight. We give you praise, honor, and glory, and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so this is really our third time together. The first time together that didn't get recorded was basically just the introduction uh, where I sort of shared my testimony of how I came to the doctrines of grace to embrace them. Um, and told you of, of my disciples' travails and trying to share with me these things, but how God used the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer and then how God arrested me with Acts, 8, Acts 13, 48. As many as were appointed 
to eternal life believed. Clear, right? And then last week, last week, last week, last time, two weeks ago, what did we talk about? Yeah, the T. Total depravity. I'll give you a simple definition on, and hopefully this will jog your memory, but total depravity simply means that every part of our being is corrupted by sin. And specifically that our will, our human will, is in bondage to sin so that in and of ourselves we will not seek or choose God. And we saw a, a number of verses, but a couple especially like the Lord Jesus in, in John three, nineteen and following, where those who practice sin will not come into the light. Why? They love the darkness. They hate the light, right? We love... Our hearts love things, and that's why we choose them. So the fallen heart, the depraved heart, is going to choose what it most desires. And apart from grace, it's going to, it's going to prefer its own way. It's going to prefer sin. Maybe, maybe that's refined religious sin or the opposite. But the, the, the human being that is born is lost, born depraved, born not seeking God, born dead in trespasses and sins. And Ephesians 2 is another good passage for that. Before we came to Christ, we were dead. And that's dead. We weren't reaching for any life preservers on the surface of the water. We were in the bottom of the, the sea with seaweeds around our head, dead. We had to be brought to life, and you see that in Ephesians 2. So, regeneration. And remember, total depravity doesn't mean we're as bad as we could possibly be that we're as outwardly evil as we possibly could be. But it does mean we're as lost as we could be, that every aspect of our being has been darkened by sin, that we need rescue and we cannot rescue ourselves. And then I put one verse here that uh, seems that if you only had one verse, you would, this would be enough, where Paul says as he's summing up in Romans chapter 3, and we saw it as we worked through it, no one understands no one seeks God. So it doesn't leave any room for this sort of general prevenient grace that enables everybody to make their own decision or anything like that. Jesus tells us, Paul tells us, the Word tells us that outside of Christ we're dead, we're spiritually dead, which results in seeking our own way. We have all gone astray, it says, each seeking God's way, his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. No one on their own, apart from God working graciously in their hearts, no one seeks for God. So that was total depravity. Every part of our being is corrupted by sin. And I told you, if you really get that, if you really own that, if you really believe what the Word says about us outside of Christ, the rest of this is not going to give you any heartache. If you just jump straight, like if, you, if you're not familiar with, with the doctrines of God's sovereignty and you go straight to limited atonement, well, it's not going to work. Or you, most people just jump straight to election. Well, that's not fair. Again, don't use that word fair. You don't want that before God. But if you really embrace that outside of Christ, before we come to Christ, the way we are born, we are dead in sin and trespasses, not seeking God, seeking our own way. We are totally depraved or every part of our being has been corrupted by sin. We still have the ability to choose, but our moral will is in bondage to sin. If you adopt what the Bible teaches about us with total depravity, 
it's a slide downhill from there. Because if we're totally depraved, the reason God chose us can't be in us. All of our righteousness are filthy rags. There's nothing, there's nothing that recommends me to God outside of Christ. In fact, everything in me recommends me to God's judgment throne, to His condemnation, but not to a relationship with Him, not to being reconciled to Him. So tonight we're going to look at unconditional election. And I'll give you a long definition. This is from a book that was back there. I don't, I don't know, Mike, is five points defended still back there? Yeah, I see it up there. So anyway, this book is still back there. This is a fairly lengthy definition, but I want to give you a long one first and we can kind of boil that down. But it says this in that book, God's choice of certain individuals. How many? We don't know. Great multitude. Nobody can number. So God's choice of certain individuals for salvation before the foundation of the world rested solely on, in His sovereign will. His choice of particular sinners was not based on any foreseen response or obedience on their part, such as faith, repentance, etc., on the contrary, God gives faith and repentance to each individual whom He has elected or selected or chosen. Those acts are the result, not the cause of God's choice. Election, therefore, was not determined by or conditioned upon... Here you go, why it's unconditional. It was not conditioned upon any virtuous quality or act, quality or act foreseen in man. Those whom God sovereignly elected, He brings through the power of the Spirit to a willing acceptance of Christ. Thus God's choice of the sinner and not the sinner's choice of Christ is the ultimate cause of our salvation. That's a long-winded definition of unconditional election, but it's a good one because it brings various things before us, right? But it's really that there was nothing good in us, and everybody sort of adopts that, generally speaking anyway. There was nothing... There was nothing that would draw a holy God toward me or you or anybody else outside of Christ except in judgment, in condemnation. The condition was in Him, not us. I said this before, and we'll see it uh, again in a, in a minute, that um, you don't really have to stress so much over whether or not election is true because both sides believed in election. Both sides believe God chose but the difference is over why He chose, not whether or not He chose. Because it's just too clear in Scripture that God chose a people before the foundation of the world. Let me give you a couple of quotes, and I think I left these on your sheet. But the first one is Jonathan Edwards. And remember, Jonathan Edwards was the faithful man, preacher, pastor, intellectual giant that was reformed to the core and teaching these things I'm teaching you. And God used him and his faithfulness to Scripture and brought about the Great Awakening. So it seemed like God was pleased with what he was doing, but using him for what he wanted to use him for. But Jonathan Edwards said, Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. Quick question, wake you up. Why might that be what he loved to ascribe to God? Why do you think? Why would he delight in God being absolutely sovereign? See, that's what I'm telling you. Embracing sovereignty, embracing the truth about sovereignty takes all the weight off of you because salvation is of the Lord. 
And therefore, your assurance can abide even in those troubled waters of life. Right? Because we got that old default setting. If things are going wrong, I must have done wrong. Things are going right, I must have done right. If I want things to go right, I need to pay the preacher. Well, I won't argue with that. But <laughs> yes, I, yes, I will. That's not going to get you anywhere with God, okay? Be faithful to your, to your pastors. But um, Edwards delighted in God's sovereignty. Now, look at Spurgeon. We quoted Spurgeon last time. See which side of this issue Spurgeon's on. He said this, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen Him. And I am sure He chose me before I was born or else He would never have chosen me afterwards. And He must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I could never find in myself why He should have looked upon me with special love so I am forced to accept that great biblical doctrine. Doctrine of election. So that's what unconditional election is. God chose us before the foundation of the world, not based on anything in us, but what does Paul give the praise to in Ephesians 1 over and over? God's grace. To the praise of His grace, His glorious grace, because of His great love. Language like that. If you're trusting in Jesus tonight, if you're resting in Christ, it's because God has worked that in you. And it shows that you were His before the foundation of the world. Christ came to save you and He accomplished it. But what's our, what's our guiding question in this series? Yeah, what does Scripture teach? What does the Bible teach? What does God teach in His Word? Because we don't want to rely on feelings or tradition or anything like that. We, primarily, we want to rely on what God's Word says. And thankfully, when, I, when the Lord brought us to faith, even though I was arguing with all these doctrines of sovereignty, I was committed to the Bible being the Word of God. So I came across Acts 13, 48, and God put me in a shut-up. But that's really what we want to know. What does the Scripture teach? And there are many more verses we could use on this. I'm going to give you a few. But listen, if, if, a, if, a, if, doc, if God said it one time, that's enough, right? If He said it clearly one time, that's enough to establish it. He never lies. Let's, um, I put Ephesians 1-4 there, but, uh, and, and you can look at that. I'm going to read a little more than that because... Um, yeah, I'm going to read 3 through 6 of Ephesians 1 just to set that in context. And see Paul praising God and thanking God and telling God that uh, rejoicing in the fact that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then the first spiritual blessing he rehearses is our being chosen before the foundation of the world. So watch it. Verse 3 of Ephesians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, comma, just as He chose us in Him, in who? In Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love, or in love He predestined us. Depends on how you mark the punctuation there. By presenting, pres, predestining, 
by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He graciously bestowed on us in the Beloved. To the praise of His glory. But in verse 4, right there, just a piece of the verse, He chose us in Him, Christ, before the foundation of the world. See, that's really why verses like that are why both sides admit to an, an election. I mean, the, most people get, they get shook by that a little bit, but the Armenian side believe in election too. It's just the wrong basis for that choice. He chose us. Christ said that to the apostles, right? I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit. Acts 13, 48, the one that arrested me. When the Gentiles heard that Paul was turning from the Jews to the Gentiles and preached the gospel to them, when they heard the gospel, it says, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Notice what they're glorifying. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Everyone that was appointed to eternal life believed. Everyone that was given to Christ before the foundation of the world believed. Go to John 17, and I've told you this before. Go read John 17. Read it out loud. You hear Christ praying for you. But one of the things he says in that prayer is, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you gave me out of the world before the foundation of the world. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.4, you just heard it. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Or we know your election, this translation says. How did, how did, how, what made Paul confident that God had chosen those in the church in Thessalonica? Say again. They repented and yeah. Conviction, repentance, and a change of life. They had gone from serving idols to serving the true and living God and waiting for His Son from heaven who the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. All of their hope was in God's grace. And, and based on God's grace, they loved Him and were plowing into that new life that He had provided. Paul says, we know that you chose God because this is what we see in your life. Now, I snuck up on you, didn't I? That is not what that says, is it? Now, does anybody believe in God without repenting and trusting in Jesus? Does anybody, is anybody saved without that? No. But He works in us to will and to do according to His good pleasure, not just in our sanctification, but also in our justification in every way. We know, brothers, brethren, church, loved by God that He's chosen you because you now trust in Christ. You now follow Christ. You now are living for the glory of God and not the idols that you used to live for. Those were evidences of grace. Evidences of them being chosen before the foundation of the world. So it seems clear to me in Scripture that election is true. God chose a people. Right? Anybody have any questions or comments about that before I move on? that would disprove a fact that God chose before the foundation of the world. I'm open to it. Okay. Now, here's the grinding question. And I've already given you the answer, so it's really not grinding you very much, unless you don't like it. I would just say be patient. 
We get it if you struggle with these things. We, we love you. Anyway, if you don't come to the same conclusions, but I believe what we're teaching is, is the truth of the Bible. Right? So God chose a people. There's so many verses I can't go to. I mean, like the Psalms, blessed is the one that you choose and cause to approach you. Jesus, high priestly prayer. And it's all through. Once you see it, once the lights come on, it's everywhere when you're reading Scripture. And think about once we get over ourselves. Sorry, I'll apply it. Once I got over myself, to think that God, I mean, like Spurgeon. What in the world is going I don't know why he chose. I mean, when early on when I was struggling with this thing, why not, why not, why not all these other people? And later on, after I marinated in it a bit, it's like, wow. God chose me. Uh-huh. I don't understand that. Because I know what a rascal I was, and if, if I don't believe me, I can ask her. Because she knows too. Y'all don't know me, but I hadn't always been a preacher. God chose a people for salvation from before the foundation of the world. That is clear. Look at number two. Here's the question. It's always been the question, why, why did he choose? What was the basis for his choice? Let me read the comparison sheet for you. So I gave you all, all one of these, and if you lost it and want another one, whatever, just let me know. But this is a comparison sort of summaries that we're working off of. On the Armenian side of the ledger, number two is, is conditional election. Conditional election. So the Armenian protest to the official doctrine of the church summarized this way. God's choice of certain individuals unto salvation before the foundation of the world was based upon His foreseeing that they would respond to His call. He selected only those whom he knew would of themselves freely believe the gospel. Thus the sinner's choice of Christ and not God's choice of the sinner is the ultimate cause of salvation. Well, so far the verses we've read don't seem to present that side of things, does it? Okay, on the right side, unconditional election. God's choice of certain individuals unto salvation before the foundation of the world rested solely in His own sovereign will. His choice of particular sinners was not based on any foreseen faith, repentance, etc. Thus God's choice of the sinner and not the sinner's choice of Christ is the ultimate cause of salvation. And again our question, which one of those things does the Bible teach? Did God choose us because He saw we would choose Him? Or did we choose Him because He chose us and gave us faith? Did He choose us on the basis of His own mercy and grace, His own heart, His own plan? I think the right side is the biblical side. I'm going to try, I'm going to just give a few scriptures tonight and try to demonstrate that to you. But God... If God chose on the basis of what He saw would happen, number one, He learned something. He doesn't learn. And he doesn't, He's not a reactionary, so He learns new things. Oh, I wish I'd have saw that coming. I'd have done things different. That's not how it works. Study the attributes of God. One of the things He is is omniscient, immutable, doesn't change. 
the question between conditional election, what does the Bible teach? Now, we're going to get there. And listen, I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again. And you should probably already have your seatbelt buckled. But when we get to Romans 9, buckle up. Eat a good breakfast. Pray into that really good. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's strong. But it's truth. This is part of Romans chapter 9. As Paul wrestles over the salvation of the Jews and his heart is for his, his Jewish brethren, he wants them to come to faith. He was willing to sacrifice himself if they would. But he's explaining the relationship of the gospel to the Jews and then the, the Gentiles and how we fit in as we go on through 11 and things. But in Romans chapter 9, he says this. This is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. By the way, when he said that, what did Sarah do and Abraham do? Yeah, they laughed. Why? Because they, oh, things are not working that way anymore. And not only so, but also Rebecca, when she, when she had conceived and born children by one man, our forefather Isaac, the first miracle child, child of the Spirit, though they were not yet born. So Rebecca's two sons, right? Though they were not yet born, had done nothing either good or bad. Notice what is not in consideration. Had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's elect, purpose of election might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. I've asked y'all before, what's the miracle in that statement? Have you read that account? Is it any wonder that he didn't, that Esau was not favored? Hmm? The miracle is Jacob I have loved. In other words, Jacob I have chosen. The covenant's running through Jacob. Neither one of those knuckleheads deserved it. Deceiver and deceiver. They were both in their own way. But he says, I have choice. I have made a choice. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? And isn't this what God is accused of, if this is true? If God's anticipating, I mean, yeah, if God and through Paul and Paul's anticipating the right objection, we can be pretty sure we're on the right track here. Is there any, is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Have you heard that lately? By no means. God forbid. Strongest possible negative in the Greek language. An emotional response on Paul's behalf. God forbid. By no means. For he says to Moses, and he did say this, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Stop. Is mercy deserved? Does anybody deserve mercy? Was he obligated to save anybody? What should he have done with all of us? If you really believe that, you won't have any problem with the rest of this stuff. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, now watch this clear statement. It depends not on human will. Whoa, stop. It depends not on human will. It's not dependent on the human choice. That's not the basis of it. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God's not looking to see who would believe in Him in some ideal set of circumstances and then choosing them on that basis. If that's true, that's not predestination anyway. That's post-destination. 
And who's really making the choice in that scenario? Man, not God. But this is God's Word, and it says it depends not on human will. What depends not on human will? Whether or not He has mercy. How is that mercy expressed? Jacob, I have chosen. So if our response is, that's not just, or that's not fair, that's the response he said we would have at first blush. Because that's the way it seems to us, right? Because we don't remember who we are. We don't see us from the eyes of a holy God. We don't see how really icky that total depravity really is and what we deserve. They, it was not based on what they did. Remember, it says, not based on works, but him who calls. He's not looking at, that wasn't the choice because, listen, both of them were nasty. Both of them were, both of them, Jacob and Esau's righteousness was filthy rags. Neither of them deserved good from God. I mean, have you read the story of Abraham and Isaac and, and on down the line? You tell me which one of them deserved God's grace. Where did Abraham come from? He, he was an idolater in the land of Ur. And even after God brought him over, his wife was way more gracious than mine was. Mine is. I'm going to tell him you my sister because I'm afraid. You're going to do what? Well, I ain't going to tell him that. But Yeah, you see mercy running all through the account. Read about the disciples. Read about everybody you want to read. Read about David. Oh, by the way, did you know that Arminius said that if David had died before he repented, he would have been lost? Sorry, that was a rabbit, and I'll shoot it. it look back at verse 16. I want it to burn into your brain. It depends not on human will, but on God to have mercy. If it doesn't depend on human will, all that I read you about conditional election on the, le on the left side is, is easy, Jeff. Not biblical. And that's being kind. But it's not dependent on human will. All right, look at, look at the next text. Anybody have any questions about that before I move on? That's a long one. I would, encur I would encourage you before we get there to go ahead and begin reading um, from, you know, verse, where we're at in chapter 7 through chapter 8 into chapter 9 and 10 and 11. So you're ready when that shock wave hits on that Sunday. Yes, sir. In fact, it's one after this one. Yeah. What I was going to say is that when you reference Romans 9, 1 there, it harkens back to Abraham and the promise of Isaac. One thing that's interesting about that is the context of that chapter in Genesis 18 yeah. flows immediately from 17, yeah. where Abraham, you know, before God says, oh, that Ishmael might walk before you. Yeah. And what is, what is God's response saying? No. Because in Isaac, will the covenant continue more right. or less. And so there was, there's there too, this kind of a similar type of thing. Right. You know, with, with Jacob, Esau, Ishmael, Isaac, the only thing separating Isaac from Ishmael ultimately is just the sovereign pleasure of God. Amen. So Amen. it's kind of you know, both Good. tough 
Good. All right, look quickly at, at Romans 10, 20. Isaiah, and read, listen, read Romans, and if you have a Bible that highlights quotes from the Old Testament, watch for that and be amazed at how many texts from the Old Testament Paul is expanding upon. And I don't have time to go through all of it. But Romans 10, 20, he's quoting Isaiah. And look what Isaiah is saying, or really what God is saying. I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Just another way of saying, saying Abraham wasn't seeking God. He was not the true and living God, right? And on down the line. Jeff wasn't. Jeff was living for Jeff. And grace interrupted my path, and I'm thankful it did. I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Now here, John 1, 12 and 13. Mark brought it up. He, did not, he wasn't received even by his people, but to all who did receive him. What do you mean? Who believed in his name, trusted in him. He gave the right to become children of God who were born. This is born again, right? Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see how it's not based on the will of man? And he's emphasizing that, the way he says that. It's not based on our will. It's based on his. And he's a holy and righteous and pure and undefiled God. He always does right. He always does justly. He never does wrong. Everything he does is right and just and true, including his mercy is a just mercy and his wrath is a just wrath. Some get strict justice. Others get a just mercy. But nobody gets injustice. Nobody gets injustice. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2.13. And I'm giving you this sheet, yes, so you can mark in the, in the margins as we're kind of going through, but also so you can take it home and read it in context and look up these verses and look up other verses and just pray over them. And Lord, is this what your word teaches? But 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul, we ought, but we ought all, I mean, yeah, Paul, but we ought always to give thanks for you, brothers, beloved of the Lord. This is in the, the second book of Thessalonians, we said in the first one. Because you chose God as the first fruits to be saved. No, God chose you through sanctification by the Spirit and believe in the truth. See, He's worked all that out. He chose not only the end, but the means to that end. The gospel coming to them, working through that gospel to bring them to life or for them to be regenerated, born again, so that they would turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. All because God chose them. Let me read one more and we'll pause and see if you have any questions. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. Therefore do not be ashamed. Now Paul is having to encourage and try to strengthen Timothy, his, his child in the faith. And this is the last letter he's writing and he wants Timothy to be faithful in ministry and bold. And he's just trying to strengthen him with this letter. 
Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Comma. God, he's explaining now. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Not because of what we did. Not because of what He would see that we would do. Not because of the will of the flesh or the will of man or anything like that. Dead people don't make choices. Lazarus in that tomb wasn't making a choice to come out. He didn't take the first step towards God. He was, surely by now he stinketh, his sister says. And yet Jesus said, come out. And when He calls us, come forth. We go from dead and sin and trespasses to faith saved us and called us with a holy calling not because of our works any of them anything we do but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages begin so that last phrase there his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus is the same thing as saying he chose us in him before the foundation of the world he gave the father gave us to the son before the foundation of the world the Son was the covenant mediator. The Spirit agreed to apply the, the, the redemption purchased by Christ. Not because of our works, but His own purpose and grace. Okay, any comments or thoughts while I get a drink of water that doesn't have a top on it? Do you see it? Is there, is there confusion about it? Does it, is it clear? If it's not, let me know. We can talk about it. And if you don't want to let me know in this public forum, send me an email. Send me a text. Give me a call. Happy to sit down in person. Have a coffee. Have lunch. Open the Bible. And look at it. Yes, sir. Why wouldn't God save everyone? Um, and I know, you know, our belief is, you know, mercy and justice. You know, no one's getting injustice. Is is right, a, right. is an explanation? True. But I don't. To me, it seems like this is maybe an attempt. Yeah. To, to, to answer that question. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's really sort of the way we would naturally go to try to marry these things up, isn't it? It's the way our, our, our just natural minds would try to make sense out of these things, right? When somebody, when somebody asks me, why would, why would not God save everybody? You know what my return question is? Why would he save anybody? Why would he save anybody? Who deserves it? Nobody. Because in other words, I'm pointing them back to the total depravity because if we get that, this makes sense. The reason to accept it, though, is because the Word teaches it. But whenever I'm talking to people that don't believe the doctrines of grace, I don't beat them up for it, 
right? I just try to point them to Scripture. I'll give them my testimony. I'll point them to Scripture. I want to be patient and let God work in their lives the way He did in mine. Because when this stuff was first presented to me, and, and honestly, I was a battler. I was a brawler. I was a debater. You know, so I, I was sort of overt with those kind of things. But I resisted it tooth and nail. And, but Tommy was so gentle, and he was so patient, and so loving, and he took all the slings and arrows from me, and he just kept plowing, right? But it was God's Word that got through, and it was Acts 13, 48. But yeah, it is, it is, it is a, a way to sort of um, defend God from the accusation of injustice. It seems unjust for God not to save everybody if He's going to save anybody, for Him not to choose everybody if He's going to. But just, and you might remind people too that, you know, everybody's always recognized that God chose a people. The only question is why. Well, I say everybody, not everybody, but the Armenian and the Calvinist recognized that there was a choice made. It was just a discussion on why. So that's why it points us back to total depravity to show it can not be based in us. And these texts. But, but just, you know, when, when you're talking with people, I would just say, Please don't beat people up. Please, please don't be harsh and nasty with people because you just get in the way at that point. Right? Just be gentle and loving and patient. It's okay if people don't agree with you about everything. It's okay if they, the, some of the things, I mean, you know, relatively for now, it's okay if some of the things they believe is not what you believe Scripture teaches. Just be faithful to present Scripture to them and then let, give the Spirit room to work because a lot of times people have to go away especially if the conversation seems a little bit like a competition right so you got to be careful about that because defenses come up but people need to go away they need to think about these things and if the spirit's at work in his time he will soften that heart and bring them around to accepting it so I would just say you know yes that happens and yes the Armenian side was protesting official doctrine of the church they thought they figured it out better. They were misdefining words like foreknowledge. They were taking John 3.16 as though it said something about who would believe, things like that. And they really, you know, I think probably most of them, including Armenians, thought they were saying what Scripture teaches, but they were washing away some stuff and, and not accurately presenting uh, some things. There's no conflict between John 3.16 and what I'm teaching you. There's no conflict with any verse in Scripture in what, what I'm teaching you. John 3.16 is not telling us that God left the choice up to us. And really, the word whosoever is not in the Greek. It's, it's not. That the one believing might not perish, but have everlasting life. The question is, why do we believe? I mean, is that getting around to what you're talking about? Or <clears throat> these are these are. If you're talking to a believer, I wouldn't spend the bulk of my time on election. If you're talking to an unbeliever, did I say believer? And if you're talking to an unbeliever, focus on the gospel. Answer questions quickly. Move it back to the gospel. Right? Doctrine of election is grand, but you know. Technically, narrowly speaking, it's not the gospel. People are not justified because they be, believe the doctrine of election. They're justified because of faith in Christ. Right.
Do, if you get total depravity, if you own the fact that we are entirely corrupt because of sin, that we're therefore our will is in bondage to sin and we will always choose sin, we won't choose good, we won't choose Christ, then the choice can't be based on us choosing because without God's work, we would remain dead in sin and trespasses, resisting God, turning from the light, as Jesus said those would. That would be our, our natural default as a lost person is a way back turn to God, going our own way. And we go that way religiously or non-religiously, but we're, we're, we're going that way gospel-less, right? So if you, if you own the fact that we're dead in trespasses and sins, that we, that we are in bondage to sin in our will, that we will only choose that, then the default you see from that, we wouldn't, on in and of ourselves, nobody would choose God. But that's what the Bible says. None seek God. It doesn't say none seeks God except for when they get provenient grace or anything like that. It just says nobody seeks God. Nobody understands. Nobody seeks God. They've all turned aside. They've all become corrupt. Cindy? Jesus says that those who are sinning, those who love darkness, won't choose the light. That's another say, way of saying those who love they're following this path, they won't repent and trust Christ. He is the light, by the way, in that passage. It's the light, definite article. The light has come into the world, but men love dark, the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Therefore, they won't come into the light. So it's just verses like that. And that one was one that we used when we were talking about total depravity. All right, so read that verse for me out loud. Well, let me read it because the recording won't pick you up. The Lord, and I'm, again, I'm reading out this translation, but you'll be able to follow along with yours. The Lord is not slow about His promise. That should give us a clue, right? As some consider slowness. slowness. Now watch carefully. But is patient toward you, not willing that any, for any to perish, but for all to come repentance. The promise of redemption, right? That he's working out in time, saving the people that he chose before the foundation of the world and given to the son, saving the elect. It actually teaches election because if you look in verse nine, it says he's, he's patient toward one word, you. Who is the you? Who was he writing to? Look back in the first of the book. Not to everybody in general in the world, right? Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received the same kind of faith as ours by the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to 
you to the church. God is not slow. God, God is patient towards you, toward the church, not willing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's not talking about whether or not He's, he's wanting every person in the world to come to, to repentance. It's saying God is patient towards you. Who? Those to whom the promise is made. Those who are in Christ, in the covenant. He's not willing for any. What, how many people will, will perish according to what Jesus said? How many will he lose? So that verse is actually, if you're careful and watch the words, that little word you, which notice it's not in italics, it's in the original Greek, is saying he's patient towards the church, the elect, not willing that any of them should perish but all of them to come to repentance. So that verse, if you, if you sort of just get the second half of it, it sounds one way, but if you bring the whole thing together, it's actually teaching what we're saying about election. Jan. I know what context is, right, in study? King. Context is king. Without the rule of context, I can show you where the Bible says there is no God. But it says something right before that. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So. Yes, ma'am. We. Yeah. Go read that verse and watch for the little word you. Look back in verse 2 of chapter 1. You'll see who the you is and it'll make that verse make complete sense to you. Can you answer one more thing about that verse for me? Yeah. Is he talking to the ones who have obtained the faith, right? So he's talking to believers. Why does he use, why is it making it sound like that they should be like in the future repenting? Or am I misunderstanding? Right, when he's using that word generally, He's not willing that any of you should perish, but all come to repentance, right? So it's not, it's not just those particular people, because remember, Thessalonians wasn't written just to the believers so in Thessalonica. Yeah, yeah. Believers. But you're talking about you. Not just in the Kelly. He wasn't willing for you to perish, but for you to come to repentance, right? He's faithful to his promise to save his people that Jesus prayed for and said, I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. The ones in Ephesians, He chose us before the foundation of the world. I mean, that's another place where you have to have context in Ephesians. He chose us who? Everybody? No. Then he, did, he, did He just choose the Ephesian believers? No. Because that's the Word of God and it's to all of us. All that the Father has given me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3, we were close while we're there. Second Peter, First Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. 
Watch this. He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from Christ from the dead. He caused us to be born again. He gave us faith. He worked faith in us. We were dead. He brought us to life. He caused us to be born again because of that choice we're talking about. See, faith and repentance is a gift of God. It's not something God looks into the future to see if we'll have. We, none of us would have it without His gift. None of us would believe if God didn't work in us to bring us from death to life. If we weren't born again so that we could see the kingdom of God, see Christ as the King, see our need for a Savior and the mercy of God available in that Savior, Christ Jesus, and turn and trust in Him. None of us would do that without God's work of grace. And He's promised it to all who were given to the Son. Ephesians 2.8 is on your sheet. It's really, you can make a mark. It really should say 2.8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. There's the general statement. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. I won't go into the technical technicalities of this, but when it says it is the gift of God, the way that that is constructed is saying that the entire grace by faith salvation is the gift of God, which would include faith and repentance. <clears throat> Every, your faith, your repentance, your salvation, it is all a gift of God, not a result of what you've done so that you may not boast, but it's a result of what He's done so that you can boast in Him. He created us, or you could say recreated us in verse 10. He birthed us again so that we might work, walk in newness of life. I'm summarizing, but you can read verse 10. You see, walk in the good works he's foreordained. One more, Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you, Philippians, and through the Philippians to us. Remember, this is the word of God written to that and through that church to the church at large. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Notice, it is granted to you to believe in Him. It has been granted to you to believe in Him. We believe in Him because it was granted to us. Acts 13, 48, as many as were appointed to eternal life believe. Listen, you'll never figure out all the ins and outs of this. And it's not meant for you to. There's an omniscient mind and heart and, in God. And He's given us the truth that we might know that He chose us so that we can rest in Him and in His salvation. But Scripture, it seems to be saying that the election was unconditional because there's no condition in us that could draw His choice. It's, un, it's unavoidable that He chose. The only thing in us is filthy rags. The only thing in us is total depravity. The only thing is us is we, our wills in bondage to sin that won't choose Him unless. Unless in the middle or after the first three verses of Ephesians 2, there's those two little words, but God. That's what made the difference. Let's, let's read that before we quit. 
Ephesians chapter 2. And see where the emphasis, what syllable has the emphasis. Now watch this in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul is telling the Ephesian Christians and through them us, he's telling, he's telling them their condition before Christ. What happened? Their condition after Christ. And we, we've already read 8 through 10. But in, in, in Ephesians 2 it says, You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were in bondage. You will was bound to them. You were choosing and choosing that because that's what you desired and loved. You were dead in transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, according to the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, in whom we all formerly conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And watch this. Watch this. This is what we deserve, okay? And by nature, we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Of mankind. See, the difference wasn't in us. We were dead, sinful, bondage, needy, lost. Now watch the difference. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Wow, why did He love us? Were we lovely? even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us to alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We are trophies of grace because God's grace is what made the difference in our lives. We chose Him. What did John say? We, not that we loved Him, but that He loved us and gave His Son to be the propitiation of our sin. God is what makes the difference. But God. Without that but God, we would have remained children of wrath and perished under that righteous and just wrath. Our faith is the result of His election, not the cause of it. So He gets all the glory and the praise. Yeah, Cindy, the old illustration. If you see a turtle on a fence post, you know he didn't get there by himself. (laughs) If you see someone trusting in Christ, you know that they didn't do that themselves. Because it's... We, like that turtle, would have stayed in the mud if it wasn't for His grace. You've got a couple of blanks on your sheet. I'm trying to see, to encourage you to take notes. Hey, babe, we didn't get the backside of the sheet. I know it was a double-sided thing. Earlier, so. You know what? We didn't, I didn't tell it to duplex. That's my fault. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope you've been writing these verses down or you won't know if you're elect. No, if anybody wants me to reprint this for you, I will. Or I can send you an electronic copy. Um, I can do that as well. But let me, let me give you a few reasons to embrace the doctrine of election. Unconditional election. What might be the first reason to embrace the doctrine of unconditional election? Hmm? That? What? I said it before it came up. I said it before it came up. 
And it, and it is true being, meaning what? What the Bible teaches. Not because it, it feels right to me, not because it seems right to me, not because it's what I've always been taught, because most of us it, it was not. Honestly, and it grieves me, what is mostly taught in the churches in America these days is what's on the left side of the ledger. The Armenian theology. They didn't start there. That's where they drifted. But yeah, the first reason to embrace unconditional election is because it is true. It's what the Bible teaches. Number two, it'll give us courage in witness. God does this, His saving through the gospel. He, he, he's got people in Swansboro that haven't yet come to faith. And as we, as weak and needy and feeble as we are, and as much as we mess it up, and we share that gospel, it's never a waste of time. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, the Jew first and the Gentile. So it doesn't matter my clever illustrations or if I could answer all the questions or anything like that. If I know the gospel and I share that gospel in the context of that muddled discussion, Stories told of a mountaineer who knew two things. One verse of a, of a hymn in John 3.16 and went into the hills. And out from the hills came a hundred other people who came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because he went and shared. I'm not saying that's all we have, but I'm just saying when we faithfully share the gospel, God will use it. It doesn't depend on us. Number three, it humbles us so that we boast in the Lord. I know that my salvation in no way depends on me. It wasn't my idea. Like Charles Spurgeon, I know I'd have never chosen him. And I don't know why he chose me. So it humbles me and puts me in the right place to rest in him, to boast in him, to hope in him, to know that he will finish the good work he has started. And it's not up to me to hold on to it. We'll see when we get down to uh, perseverance of the saints. Number four, it makes us gracious with others. It makes us gracious with others. We, as God's chosen ones, Paul says in, in Colossians 3, we're to be kind and gentle and patient, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, loving one another. Even when we disagree, that gentleness, that kindness, that patience, that willingness to lovingly, help and disciple. And lastly, it promotes assurance. I'm telling you, without your feet, without you being on the rock which is Christ and standing on the truth about Christ, without you established in the doctrine of God's sovereignty and knowing that all of your salvation is of Him, you're going to ride a roller coaster for the rest of your life. You'll, you'll feel assured on the good days and lost on the bad days and you know, I don't know if I have it or I don't know if I can hang on to it. I might lose it. If 99.9% .9 of my salvation is God and that 0.1% is mine, I'm going to hell. Because I won't be able to hold on to it. See, but resting in God's sovereignty and His sovereign grace, because it's true, will humble us, give us courage, make us gracious, and promote the assurance that we all want to walk in because salvation is of the Lord. Sam. It flows kind of out of number five there, but uh, another reason that I think one might see this in Scripture 
is that it also provides a great deal of comfort. Yeah. Because if you, if the idea is ultimately that God looks through the corridor of time and sees those who respond to the gospel and then chooses them, that poses a real problem for those who are unable to be called by the word. Right. So, for instance, severely retarded infants die in infancy and the like. But right. one of the things that's nice about some of the older Reformed confessions and whatnot is they address that. It says, you know, yeah. elect infants die in infancy and those otherwise incapable or incapable of being called because of the fact that it realizes this doctrine. Yeah. Right? So there's some practical pastoral yeah. issues that can come up. That's an exhaustive list. Y'all can come up with more. But um, that's good. That's good. Anything else? Comments or questions? Why would I want you to embrace these things? Because you have become convinced the Bible teaches them. I'm just trying to show you what most believe the Bible teaches, most on this side believe the Bible teaches. And it's not ripping things out of context, and it makes sense of all of Scripture, and it, it's the one that most leans toward boasting in the Lord and many other reasons. But the reason I believe in total depravity in the doctrine of the unconditional election is because I see it in the Word. It's what the Word teaches. Christ taught it. And following Him, His apostles, and down through the ages, His church. See, this theology didn't start in the Reformation. It was recovered in the Reformation. But it is the truth of the Word of God. Okay. Let's pray. Lord, help us to rightly understand your word. Help us to rightly understand your sovereignty. Help us to in no way use your sovereignty to wash away our responsibility. We pray to you because you're the God that not only ordained the end, but the means to those ends. You've told us to pray, and that's reason enough. We witness because we know you will save your people. We witness primarily because we love you and you told us to. If we use your sovereignty to wash away our responsibility, we don't really understand. So help us to understand. Help us to believe. Help us to joyfully obey. Lord, work in our hearts to embrace what your word teaches. And if these things are what your word teaches, we want to stand on them. So give us grace with one another, those who maybe are not here yet. Uh, Lord, help us to be patient and kind and loving, um, but just encouraging and helping and whatever we can do to, to help all of us walk faithfully with the Lord Jesus Christ. Grow us in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow us in our knowledge of your word. Grow us and knowing how to understand it and seeing what it teaches. Help us to be biblical in our doctrine as well as in our practice. It is in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen.